you'll turn over to Matthew chapter 6, we said originally this was going to be a three-week series. Um, This is the fourth week, so today we'll be ending. If I can get through these 11 words in this verse, we'll be finishing our time. It's been a rich time. When we think about how Jesus prayed, it helps all of us because there's this dynamic in this passage that I think you've seen. It's the idea that there are categories that we walk through, but there's also a posture that we keep. So there's content, but then there's also a a, a yielding. There's an understanding of that. It's almost as if uh, Jesus is teaching us that when we go into praying, it's meant to not only change things around us, but it's meant to change us. It's meant to put us on a different plane, you could say, even. John Burroughs, a naturalist, uh, studies hawks. And one of the things he noticed is that when a hawk is attacked by a kingbird or a crow or something like that, he doesn't do what other birds do. Other birds might fight in the air, uh, might go to ground, go to cover, do something like that. He found it interesting that a hawk actually will start climbing. It'll start circling, going higher and higher in the atmosphere so that eventually the kingbird and the crow or whatever other nuisance is there, other thing wanting to do the hawk harm, falls away because it can't go that high. It's a strategy that John Burroughs thought was absolutely fascinating, distinct in the animal world. I would say that the parallel to that idea is exactly why Jesus is teaching his disciples how he prayed. We've said this multiple times. You get it by now. It's the only thing that the disciples ever asked Jesus to to show them how to do. It's the only thing. It's because Jesus modeled it. Jesus was praying before the Galilean ministry. He spends the night in prayer. Every significant change or moment in the life of Christ is met with prayer the night before. That's significant. And there came a point around two years into ministry, a little bit over maybe, the disciples said, we'd really like to know what you do when you slip away. And so we've been walking through this prayer to see what exactly it is that Jesus taught them. It's not long, which is interesting. It's not flamboyant. It's not as we talked about how the Greek people would... um, They would utter prayers to get the attention of one of the gods. They would touch on themes that one of the gods maybe would turn an ear and go, okay, I'll help that person. It wasn't like the Greeks at all, the pagans. For their many words, they thought they'd be hurt. It wasn't like the Jewish people of the day either. We said in our study that the running kind of uh, formula for a Jewish rabbi, uh, particularly if he's out in public, and that's where they like to perform, because that's what prayer turned into, uh, would be mention God's name, but before you mention his name, give these adjectives. And, and by the time we know of this day, Alfred Edersheim in his great work on customs of the Jewish people talks about that by this time, the average rabbi would give 16 adjectives before he'd mention God's name. 16 talked about that. It's performance art. It's not really prayer. It's certainly not a posture. 
So when we said that when Jesus gave the disciples this prayer, it was um, earth-shaking because it wasn't long. But it was incredibly profound, enabling them to, to go higher, to circle higher up, transcend the, the imposters and the, the threats of the day. So if you're in Matthew chapter 6, let's go ahead and read what we've gone through. Then we're going to review, and then we're going to park on verse 13. So if you would uh, look at your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, uh, try to bring one next time. Uh, we'll, we'll help you, um, and if not, it's on the screen, particularly for the kids who've joined us here this morning. It's on the screen. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As we walk through this passage, we said the first thing that we saw in verse 9 is that when he mentions his Father in heaven and hallowed be your name, that the person on which all our prayers rest and that hope rests is on the Father. Prayer is designed to change you, designed to change your, your thinking. He's our Father, but he is hallowed. He's close, but he's in heaven. I think that's a posture, and it's also a category. Moved on from there, verse 10, the purpose for which we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we place God's will over our will, now we're praying God-centered prayers. Our prayers have to have the posture of, God, your will be done. And that means that life can get difficult for you. If you find your prayers leaning toward comfort, uh, you need to rethink this. Leaning, toward, uh, leaning towards uh, when I pray, I'm praying usually before a test. I need to get a good one. Be careful. Because while that's not bad to do, it's totally appropriate at a certain level. The idea, though, in the end is you surrender to his will. God gets his will in heaven. Now you enter into that and you seek to do his will on earth. And you look for that. We talked about that. You can listen to previous week when we studied it. Then in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread, the provision that we need. And what we said about that is, is that we look to God. There creates this sense of dependency. So he goes into this idea of your kingdom come right into provision. And each of these has this dependency, the rest of this. So we start with kind of a God-centered idea, who he is, his person, and then his purpose. And now we look to our provision. And this is the way God's kingdom comes. We look to him for our needs. I think that's why that's there. And only people who pray in this way begin to notice the way that God provides. Because we said everybody is provided for. There's not one thing you're wearing. There's not one mode of transportation you took to church. There's not one person in this entire world that has any type of features in life that isn't reliant on God for that. The clothes. 
the fuel, the very air we breathe has been provided by God. But only the people who regularly have the posture of looking to him for provisions begin to thank him for that, begin to recognize him. See how that works. And then we said last week, verse 12, the pardon we experience and give to others. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. The way you treat people who you love the least, we said, is the way you love God the most. In other words, if God has forgiven you of your sins toward him, a holy God, who are you, who am I, to hold things against another sinner? The person who had every right to do it was God, and he didn't take it. So who are we to treat people in an unforgiving, uncharitable way? These are profound categories. Jesus just wraps them up. As the master teacher would do, wraps these things up in ways that are incredible. Notice in each of those, he talks about the present and in the past. The idea of the present, our provision, and the past is the debts that we've been forgiven. And then today, in verse 13, starts talking about the future. Start talking about in the category of temptation. And the point we have this before us in the first part of verse 13, the pathway on which we walk. The pathway on which we walk. All of us walks that. Matter of fact, notice that the, the pronouns through here, we and us, just scatter throughout this. I think that's because no one can show up and claim to be a spiritual ninja. <laughs> I don't go through that. I'm above that. Provision, I make my own way. Forgiveness, ah, who needs forgiveness? That's for weaklings. We and us and our put all through there because he levels all of us. This is the way humans are need to, to pray. There's no spiritual ninjas. There's no spiritual titans. There's no one who's above that. I saw an interview not too long ago with a Taiwanese evangelist. He said he got to the point in life that he doesn't sin anymore. He's that spiritual. Just put all that sin stuff away. You know, I think you can get there when you misunderstand what sin is. Clearly. But there's some interesting questions we've got to ask ourselves in this passage. Incredibly interesting questions. This is one of the slipperiest verses, I think, may I say, in the New Testament. Because what we import into the verse, where it says the first part of that, lead us not into temptation. Let's just think about this for a moment. I had six questions that I wrote down when I read this. Is God responsible for our temptation? How does that feel, doesn't it? Leading us? If we don't pray this prayer, do we get more temptation than what we would get otherwise? So in other words, if we pray this, are we, are we trimming down the temptations that we would face? Is that what he's saying? If we don't pray this, do we not get delivered from evil? It seems to me that's an implication of this verse. Is that true? Uh, how much of the temptations we face and the evil we encounter relates to our not praying this prayer? It's just said another way. 
What is the evil Jesus is referencing here? Is it is it a thing? Is evil a thing? Like a blob or something that lands on us or hunting us? How do we understand this idea of evil? Is there a danger of being delivered over to evil? I mean, as a, as a Christian, is, is there a danger? If you don't pray this prayer, will you find yourself staring evil in the eyes? Uh, being in a situation in which you're delivered over to evil. Ask these kind of questions when you read the Bible. Uh, these are like shovels. They get us digging into the text. We're going to walk through these. Now, not particularly with that in the answer. We're just going to walk through the text. And what you're going to see is kind of like we used to do as kids in the in the river. We used to go looking for crabs. And we used to turn over the rocks. And you get ready to grab the crayfish underneath. I had a friend named Dave in our neighborhood. Um, I always knew when he came back from hunting uh, crayfish because we used to actually hunt them, keep them, and then we'd have them fight. And I'm not going to get into all that. But it was a lot of fun for little boys. And I remember Dave came back one time and and he, I was looking at his index fingers, and I started noticing this. I didn't, I didn't know what it, what it was, but uh, the end of his fingers were all red. I was like, Dave, why are your fingers red? Every time we go crayfish uh, hunting, it seems like your fingers are red. He says, yeah, I don't turn over rocks anymore. I said, what do you mean you don't turn over rocks? He said, I just stick my finger under the rock. If there's anything there, it grabs me. I guess that's a way. What we're going to do is choose to turn over the rock. We're going to walk slowly through this and find out what we're talking about here. Let's look at those first few uh, words there. Lead us. Uh, it can be also the idea of bring us. It can be the idea of brought us. It has the idea of just putting us in an atmosphere. It, it doesn't have the idea of coercion. Don't think that. Just lead us. It means the idea in the, in the pathway of life that we're brought to a place in life. That's the idea. And then the temptation, not into temptation. This is a tricky one. Um, put on your boots with this one because you can slip if you're not careful. The idea of temptation here, it's a neutral word. Parismos. It has the idea of proving or testing. Within the word, it has no idea of evil or bad or anything like that. It's just a test. It's just a proving. So let's imagine you're on a diet. You're sitting at a table. Somebody makes a great dessert and they slide it toward you. And you say, ah, oh, looks great. I but don't tempt me. That's not evil. It's just the idea of you're putting something temptation and not have gambling. I could go into a, a place that there's gambling and not have any inclination to bet. It's not because I'm a spiritual ninja. It's just that I have no care for that. I have no desire from that. I was never involved in gambling. I simply don't care. So while that might be legitimately a temptation in the category of a testing, it doesn't have the force of temptation like it would for some other people. See, this idea of temptation is a surface idea of attempt to testing. Then there's an underneath idea that a testing or a temptation can become a temptation to sin. 
And in this situation, when we think about this, it has the idea of proving what you're made of. So he says, lead us not in temptation. It's the idea when you bring us into temptation, and the word tempt into is interesting because it has almost the idea of abandoning us. That's really important. Don't bring us or abandon us in our temptation. I think that's a really important distinction at this point in the verse. Because what he's saying here is not that God's doing it, but God, would you help me when I am tempted to see my life and my value and my joy in you and please don't let me go. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. This idea of being tested, I think we were reminded this week, all of us, of why this is really, really important. That all of us will go through temptations, testings, trials to show what we're made of so that we don't put ourselves in situations or when we do put our situations in when a, a trial moves to a the underbelly of temptation to sin that we resist it. This week, um, heard of the submersible craft called the Titan. It was created by a Stockton rush from Ocean Gate, and you've heard the story, I'm sure, that it went down seeking to explore the Titanic tragic. It imploded. The pressure crushed that thing like a pop can under someone's foot. Do you know out of the 10 vehicles that can travel down to the 32,000 foot depth, 10,000 meters. There's 10 vehicles in the world that can do that. And all of them are certified, except for that one. It never went through the certification. In other words, Stockton Rush was effectively gambling. And when he was tested, and the skin of that shell was tested. The word temptation, tested or trialed or sought to be proven to see what it's made of. It was crushed because it wasn't made for those depths. And in this passage, he says, lead us not in temptation. Don't deliver us over to temptation. Don't put us in a situation in which we can't handle it. That's the heart cry of that. But you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tested. It's not saying don't let me be tempted, don't let me be tested. It's the idea is when you're in that situation, what are you made of? Let's walk through this a little bit more and see some examples of this. In Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 3, we know that the idea of God not leading you into temptation, uh, he's not evil or mean or against you. Matter of fact, in this passage in Matthew 4, we talked about it. Uh, during one of the weeks of this, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Same word. It's the root word. He was led by the Spirit. In other words, why was the Spirit of God leading Christ into the wilderness? To see what he was made of. To show that he is going to say no to the enemy. So when Jesus is tempted, that he is proven. Matter of fact, that when the tempter came, it's the exact same word. I find that interesting. 
kind of keep that as a bookmark for this verse. Because the temptation that Jesus goes through is the same word as for the tempter. Same exact word. Because he's laying before Christ. You can go this way or you can go this way. Another example we have from the Old Testament, I'm sure you know this, Genesis chapter 22, 1 through 19. We're not going to go through the whole passage, but you recognize this section of scripture. After saying these things, God tested Abraham. How did he test him? Well, he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Now, before you um, kind of give in to the, to the Sam Harris kind of argumentation, what kind of God would do this? Back in this day, there was no good idea of God. In other words, God would ask us. And just because God says this and describes this event doesn't mean he's prescribing it. He's just testing Abraham. Offer him to the mountain what I'll tell you. Verse 7, they get part of the journey. My father, he said, here am I, my son. Behold the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Uh, imagine the horror of this. Isaac is the son been promised. He's the only son of if Abram. Uh, must have been cherished beyond measure. God asked him to do this. Why? God wants to see what Abram's made of. Do you believe me? Do you trust me? Let's find out goes on from here he gets ready the knife is in his hand it's raised above the body of Isaac on the altar and he all of a sudden the angel of the Lord cries out do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son your only son from me this is a temptation But the temptation was neutral. And when he met the temptation with faith in God, he passed. He sees what's in him. He knows what he's made of. When he's put in that kind of depth, that emotional depth where the pressure's just crushing in, he's certified. He's certified that he's walking by faith. Matter of fact, we know from Hebrew 11, 17, that though Isaac shall be your offering and be named, it says that in verse 19, he considered that God was able to raise him back from the dead. In other words, what was going on in the mind of Abraham? And Abraham in the back of his mind says, listen, I'm just going to obey the Lord because he's promised me a son and he is my son. And so I don't know what he's doing, but I know this. I'm going to meet this temptation, this testing with faith And that means that God will give me a son because he's promised to give me a son. So I'm just going to believe that. If he's asked me to do this, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk by faith, not by sight. This may not make any sense in the moment. But when I meet this temptation with faith, I pass. It's the exact same thing with you and I today. The exact same thing. Isn't that exactly what happened with Adam and Eve? 
Just trust me. Just trust me. Just trust me. The tempter shows up. Trust him. I mean, come on. Trust yourself. You want to get ahead in life? Trust yourself. It's like that person in the office, the gossip. The gossip, the temptation to gossip about somebody is completely neutral till you give in. The temptation to lie is completely neutral till you give in. Then it moves from temptation to sin. It moves from simply being an atmosphere that you're in to now to reveal whether or not you live by faith in that moment. That's the same thing. We find another example of this in Matthew 26, 39 through 45. Remember when the disciples were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus makes this interesting statement that's uh, profound. He goes away and comes back and he finds the disciples sleeping. Remember the story? He says to them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Hold on a second. Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. We're in the garden. We're in a garden. We're outside of the city. What do you mean enter into temptation? I mean, what do you... What kind of temptation are we talking about here, Christ? See, Jesus knew what was coming next. The disciples had an indication that the the crowds hated Christ. The religious leaders hated Christ. But they didn't see it for what it is. And he says, the only way you're going to get through this moment is by praying. And through the prayer, you start to circle and go higher and higher and higher. Your perspective changes You have this dependency on the Lord. If you pray like Christ has taught you, you have this dependency on provision, dependency that you've been forgiven, and this dependency that in my temptation, Lord, don't give me too much that I can't bear, so that when the disciples would see the the torches coming and the guards walking toward them, they would be ready to stand against the temptation to try to take things into their own hands. And as we'll see later on, They failed that because they didn't watch and pray. Jesus tells them three times. Listen, if Christ is going to tell you something three times, you better do it. But they didn't. So brings us to a question now. Okay, so God is not uh, for our bad. He's for our good. Puts us in situations in which we learn to rely on him. Tell us a little bit more about that. So where does this temptation come from? Where's the origin of this? If God is for us and certifying us and seeking to prove us and seeking to have us move from trusting ourselves to trusting him, living by faith like Abraham, okay, what's going on inside me, Pastor Dan, when I'm feeling this temptation? Turn over to James, and I think he bookends two subjects for a very, very specific and particular reason. In James chapter 1, 2 and 4, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, uh, difficulties. He could have easily had the idea of temptations here. And it says, For you know that the testing of your faith, same exact concept, produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the idea is, that when you go to a depth, there's a lot of pressure here, is that you consider it with all joy, this pressure pushing in because it proves, it certifies what you're made out of. 
And the only way you grow in more dependency on the Lord is by being put under pressure. I used to work at a railroad yard. And one of the things that would have to happen with the welders is that the welders would have to have their welds certified. And this is a fantastic test. These big locomotives and cars and tankers. And what they would do is they'd make them weld a piece of metal. Two pieces of metal would come together and they'd weld from top to bottom. And then they'd put this piece of metal in a machine, this massive machine. They'd stick it in the machine and the machine would twist it one direction. And the weld had to hold. Then it would twist it back. And then it would twist it in the other direction. And the weld had to hold. So we've got tank cars. We've got people's lives on the line. And I remember standing there with some welders as they're going through this test. And when you heard a crack, the welder who made the weld would immediately be known because he'd be like, ah. and he wouldn't be certified because his weld didn't hold. When it was twisted and contorted, it didn't hold. But in this verse, he says, count it all joy. It's not the twisting. It's not the, it's not the joy for the... For the headaches in life, you're not sitting there going, yeah, bring me another one. Yeah, load them on me. Difficulty, that's my middle name. No one's doing that. You need counseling if you do that kind of stuff. And we've got a whole counseling ministry, which we can talk about later. No, the idea is is that the, the welder, after that test would happen, he was certified. In other words, my weld held. I have confidence. That's the idea. But it's interesting is after that subject, he moves into temptation because it's almost as if somebody's leaning over James's shoulder and says, but what about if you don't make it? What about if you move from a trial to a temptation and your weld breaks, you could say? He says, let no one say when he's tempted, verse 13, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Wow. What did we just read? Because the idea here is, is that in the temptation, it's not that God is the one fueling it. You're in a world that's fallen. And the idea is don't abandon us in our temptation. Don't leave us helpless in our temptation. It's not the idea that God's up there cackling, rubbing his hands together, going, ha ha, I'm leading him into temptation. Let's see about this. No. He's rooting for you. What is he rooting for you to do? To trust him. Just trust him. See your joy, see your significance, see your identity, see your meaning. Everything runs through him. And when you do that and you face a trial and you're twisted, you'll be certified. You'll go, man, I trust the Lord. When temptation comes, no one says, kick out the door and go, God did this. God did this. You know why? Remember Adam and Eve? The enemy's lurking in these kind of ideas. God isn't for you. God's against you. God's mean. If you want to live life, don't live it on God's terms. The enemy loves lingering in those bushes. You know what it is. You felt that this week. Sometimes you see life as something that you know God says isn't life. In the end, it's either you go, I trust you, Lord, or I trust you myself. And the enemy is rooting for you to trust you. 
And in this, he says, no one is being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person, verse 14, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Lured and enticed. Oh, fantastic terms. They're hunting terms. The idea of lured has this internal thing. If you fish, you know what this is. It's a lure. You go out to the river. If you're a fly fisherman, what they do is you match the hatch. You find out what's hatching during that time. You put that on your line and you throw it out because you're trying to lure the fish. You're trying to make that fish seem like there's something really good there because you want to catch that fish. That's the idea of lure. And enticed has the idea of that internals happening, but the enticing is what's going on external to the fish. That enticing is what that thing is. It's when the fish, excuse me, I'm going to try to interpret a fish thinks here in one moment. I'm not very good at this. Let me try to get into the rainbow trout mindset. When he sees that, he's going, oh, I've seen that around all day today. I've had some of those just a few moments ago. Those are delicious. So the thing outside, the Lord, I want it. The enticed is what it offers me. That's the idea. And he says, we are lured and enticed by our own desire. Oh, that's the problem. Then desire, when it's conceived, literally the word is impregnated. That desire gets in your head. It's the idea of the, the seed is planted and begins to grow. And the image here and gives birth to sin, the act, can happen in a moment. Um, and that's really the process of which, when it conceives... You need to battle back with faith. No, this is true. This is right. This is where my hope is. So it doesn't give birth to sin. The temptation isn't the sin. It's the giving in and relying on yourself that is. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Uh, It doesn't mean you're going to die as much as it means the idea of that's where this is going to take you. Do not be deceived, he says in verse 16, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, God is not behind your weakness. God is simply putting you in a situation so that you learn to rely on him, and as you continually do that, you grow in the faith. You have to be tested. You have to be tempted. But God is in this environment for you to root in you a trust in him. And he will not abandon. But that's our prayer. Don't abandon me. Probably the key verse in this idea here is in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's almost as if Paul is exegeting the understanding of the verse that we're reading here, this idea of temptation. He says, no temptation, perismos, it's the exact same word, no temptation has overtaken you or taken hold of you, lumbano, that's the word, That is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, perismos again, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's as if Paul is extending on the idea that Jesus, when he's talking about, do not lead us into temptation. He's saying in this that situation, don't let us go, Lord. That's how you pray. Pray to your father, please don't let us go. Please don't let us go. And Paul is saying, he won't let you go. He'll give you a way of escape. In other words, he's building on top of that idea. 
that God is faithful to give you a way of escape that no one can say, this is how God made me, so this is who I am. No, 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 no. God has given you a way of escape in the temptation that you trust him. It's neutral until you you come at it with either faith or a lack of faith. Hope in God, I trust you. Hope in yourself. Then it becomes a bad thing. But he says here, he'll give us a way of escape. In other words, he'll give us victory. The prayer is, God, give us victory in our hearts. Give us victory. Don't abandon us to ourselves. Just like we pray, give us this day our daily bread. We forgive other people. The idea of dependence on him for the quality of our life. And as we said, we've got to finish today. So the second part of verse 13 Call it the protection that we all need. The protection that we all need. This is a a beautiful thing. Where he says here, but deliver us from evil. Now now quickly, uh, let me kind of identify what this evil is. There's two prepositions in the Greek uh, when it comes to the word from. Ek is one and apo is another. Anytime ek is used, it's a, a thing that is being avoided, or it's a thing that's involved. But anytime oppo is involved, it's a person. And these are from the most reliable kind of Greek manuscripts. So I would say that deliver us from evil is better read, deliver us from the evil one. I think this is talking about Satan. And I think this idea of temptation is, in our weakness, Lord, don't deliver us over to the enemy of our souls. That's the idea. And I think this is dependency in prayer. Lord, I realize that I'm in this battle. I realize who I'm against. Don't deliver me over to him. That's the idea. And you know what? Jesus has promised that that won't happen. So when Jesus prays this in Matthew 6, something happens that you can be assured this prayer will be answered, even though it's a continued posture of our lives. In John chapter 17, verses 12 through 17, Jesus is praying for the disciples. And in his prayer, he says this. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And you know what's interesting about that time in Matthew 26 that Jesus said in Gethsemane, watch and pray. Jesus goes on to say, in verse 45, when they're in Gethsemane, let, uh, then he came to his disciples and says, sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinner. And the temptation that they had now erupts into the act of trying to defend Christ and not entering into prayer, not seeing what Christ saw. And so in the moment he, they're supposed to watch and pray, Jesus prays, keep them from the evil one. And then Peter goes out, and what does he do? He betrays Christ. But then what does he do? He repents. And he turns back to the Lord. Matter of fact, in one of the Gospels talks about that after the rooster crows the third time, Peter looks across the courtyard and Christ's head turns and sees him. And he goes out and weeps. But previous, Christ had said to Peter, I've prayed for you. 
And when does Jesus Christ would not be abandoned in their temptation? It's exactly what Jesus prayed in Matthew 6, 13. Now you might say, well, what about me? Pray for the disciples. Well, you know what? He exactly said the same thing about you. John 17, 20 through 21. I do not ask for them only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus has prayed for you. The answer to Christ's prayer, that you will not be delivered over into temptation. Now, that you always be given a room to escape is true for you today. But we pray verse 13 that we'd recognize it, that we walk in that truth. And James 4, 7 tells us exactly how. When the evil one comes against you, how do you deal with him? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Why? Because Jesus is your Savior. When you submit to God in the trial or in the temptation to not believe, you submit to God, I just trust you, like Abram. I trust you. Submit to God. Resist the devil. And you're submitting, you're resisting. And he is fleeing. Because he can't stand against the faith that you have in the person of Christ. Because Christ is on your side you can withstand temptation to not believe him. That is good truth. That's incredible truth. That's the best truth there is. And as the band is coming forward, I'd encourage you this morning. This is how Jesus prayed. He teaches the disciples. He helps them to discover what he already knew. And this truth is ours today, that God will not abandon us to temptation. He will enable us to stand strong. And as we do trust him, not ourselves, he tests us so that we can be twisted and turned in life and found not failing. The song we're going to sing is the reason why we can have this hope. The reason why we can pray this prayer. This talks about the worth of Christ. In his power in our life, it says, You stood before the ages, you stand the test of time. The king of new creation, storing hearts like mine. You are the way, you are the light, Jesus. Begotten of the Father, eternal word made flesh. You walked among the sinners and conquered sin and death. Crushed and pierced to give us life. So when we cry out, don't let us drift away. Like some of you maybe trained your kids to Swim, you stand in the pool and you put your arms up. Just trust me. Just trust me. The kids who jump and the kids who don't jump. The difference between the two, one trusts the parent, the others don't. And you can trust Christ when you see what he's done for you. Man, why wouldn't you trust him? Why wouldn't we trust him? Lyric goes on, who was and is and is to come, the holy and worthy one who came and called my name and set me free. You broke the chains of slavery. You gave this captive victory. The fullness of your life is now in me, all for your glory. We are your people. You are our God. That is truth that I need. That is truth that we need. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for our your spirit, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear, to see what you're intending, what you want us to know. 
And we pray even as the kids are in this room this week, joining us, that we would be faithful to helping them understand this, helping them walk through this as you enlighten us. And we might pass on what you've shown us. We'd live it out. We'd be twisted and turned and proven, certified that we're of you and that we would hand this off to our kids so that we might be faithful. Honor your name in our lives so we might spread your fame, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.